thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome to the study on the book of Leviticus. Uh, we are going to spend some time working our way through Leviticus. Now, as you know, Leviticus stands as the third book of the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, or the Torah, that is, teaching law of Judaism. In Hebrew, the book is known as Waikra. That is, uh, the Hebrew, that is, um, uh, and he called, that is, the Lord called Moses, which is taken from the opening verse of the first chapter. The name Leviticus, on the other hand, is derived from the 3rd century B.C. Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, known as the Septuagint, and refers to the members of the tribe of Levi, from which the priests of Israel were taken. The rabbis sometimes refer to this book as the instruction of or to the priest. An implication is that the book is primarily a manual for priestly functions. Nonetheless, much of the book is addressed to the people of Israel. Now, it, is, it would be fair to say that Leviticus is one of the most arduous book to read of the Pentateuch, not necessarily the hardest to understand. But it is arduous because it seems to uh, be a series of instructions and sacrifices and in ways of livings from which we are very removed. And therefore, uh, we might be tempted to think that uh, Leviticus could be dismissed because it has very little to say about our own lives. However, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, when we look at the content and overall structure of Leviticus, we notice something that is very important for us. Leviticus is written in the form of a large chiasm that is a parallel. The ancients did not care about chrono chronology as much as we do today. Uh, by this I mean that there there wasn't as much focus on telling a story as a beginning, a middle, and an end, past, present, and future, uh, because what they really wanted to do was try to highlight the central idea that they're trying to convey, that they want to convey to us, in ways that resembles mostly a mountain, so that you would have ideas that would allow us to ascend to the central idea that would be sent in the center of the book, and an idea is moving away from it. And indeed, Leviticus works this way. Um, 
So if you look at the book and its current division and chapters, you will see that we start with a set of laws concerning offerings or sacrifices. And those cover chapter 1 through 7. Then there are a set of laws about the priests, and those cover chapter 8 through 10. We move then to the laws of purity from chapters 11 to 15, and then we reach the Day of Atonement, which is really the apex of this chiasm or mountain in chapter 16. That is the center of the entire book. From there, we start moving down, so to speak, towards the laws of holiness in chapters 17 to 22. Then the laws of the priests from 21, uh, I'm sorry, from 17 to 20. Then the laws of the priests from 21 to 22. And then the appointed times from 23 to 25. Finally, um, there are uh, blessings and curses which are listed in chapter 26. And um, another chapter... Uh, consecrated to making vows before the Lord and what would happen. Both of these, 26 and 27, are a closure to the entire book. Fundamentally, the schiasm, this parallel, is saying that first we're going to look at the liturgy, the ways in which we collectively pray. And this entire presentation of the liturgy of the tabernacle leads to the Day of Atonement, which is the high point of the liturgy. And from there, we're going to move into morality, laws of holiness, laws of the priests, and appointed times. You can see, therefore, the entire book of Leviticus is structured around living and praying, rather praying and living. Praying, how do you pray, how do you, how do you offer the liturgy, how do you pray the liturgy, and then how do you live before the Lord. From this, we can observe that the Day of Atonement is central. It is extremely important. We're going to spend some time on that later. So for now, as we move through this book, it would be good for us to remember that these two uh, panels or these two sides of it. One that is dealing with the liturgy and the other one that is dealing with morality. Indeed, the main theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. That is in Leviticus 19, verse 2. That, in a sense, is the constitution of Israel. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And that is one of the most important verses of the book that is quoted in the New Testament in different forms. So, for instance, the Lord himself tells us that you shall be perfect. He doesn't tell, he commands us to be perfect, for your Father in heaven is perfect. Or again, you shall be uh, charitable for, or you shall be merciful for, your Father in heaven is merciful. These formulations are essentially telling us what the entire uh, plan of life should be about. Our purpose in life is to be holy, is to be perfect, is to be merciful, so that we may resemble 
we may imitate, we may be like our Heavenly Father. One other important point to make at the, uh, in, as far as the book of Leviticus is concerned is that it is also about the day-to-day -day life of Israel. So it isn't just about a constitution, you shall be holy. It also gives instruction on how to live the day-to-day -day life. It's a full program that God gives them with Leviticus. In order to better understand that point, that it is essentially a plan of life for Israel, we would do well to step back and look at Leviticus in its overall context, which is the uh, Pentateuch, the five books of the law. And that is Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, the, four, the five books of the law. In Genesis, if we were to take a nation-centric point of view, when we look at the Pentateuch, we can see that in Genesis, or Genesis is about the origin of the nation. Indeed, there is a flow from Genesis, from Adam and Eve, all the way to uh, Joseph, to Jacob and Joseph, that settled in, in, in Egypt with the twelve tribes. In Exodus, we're, lead, we're reading about the deliverance of the nation from Egypt. And in Leviticus, we're reading about the life of the nation in the wilderness. So, in Genesis, the theocracy, the nation of God, or the nation under God, is born. And in Exodus and Leviticus, the theocracy is established. Now, before we take that further, I think it would be good for us to address up front the question of the higher critical, the, the higher critical question. Now, by higher critical I mean a style of research, a biblical research, that tend to um, slice the books of scripture according to styles, according to certain keywords. So, for instance, if you look at the first uh, Genesis account of creation, you will see, which is in chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, you, um, you will see that in this chapter, uh, the word God that is being used in the original is actually Elohim, the Lord. And then, when you move over a couple of chapters further to the creation of Adam and Eve, there's a second account. There, the word God that is being used is Yahweh. So, the thought then, within the higher critical uh, school, is that the first account was written by a scribe, which they've called the Yahwist, because he used the word, I'm sorry, uh, the, uh, el, uh, the um, 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 uh, the, the, the school, the, the, let, me, let me rephrase that. They essentially said that the first um, account is written by a scribe who essentially uh, used the word Elohim and therefore they call it the Elohist account. And then the second one is written by another scribe, by some other person, who uses the word Yahweh, therefore they call it the Yahwist. And so the Elohist and the Yahwist account are thought to be from different authors, anonymous authors, we know nothing of them, written much, much later, maybe uh, under uh, Solomon or under David, 
so after the establishment of the kingdom of Israel, for purposes of inciting or instilling in, in Israel a sense of a renewed sense of nationalism or a renewed sense of identity. The one aspect of this approach I want to key on here is this idea that if you have different styles or different words being used in different parts of a book, it must follow that these parts are attributable to different authors and that it took someone, a third author, to sort of synthesize the whole thing into one singular account. I do wonder what would happen if we were to apply this to the work of Shakespeare or the work of uh, Victor Hugo, who is the author of uh, uh, Les Miserables and uh, not, not, uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, or War and Peace by Dostoevsky, or the works of Charles Dickens. Would we then conclude that none of these authors actually existed, and that these books were really the fruit of a committee, where the changes in styles and the different words used are then attributed to different authors, and then someone, an anonymous person, took all these different accounts and somehow harmonized them into a story? Would we do that? To better understand this particular aspect of the question, I invite you to consider a small book written by a French author named Raymond, Raymond Queneau. And the name of the book is Exercise in Styles. Exercise in Styles. And it has been translated in, into English by Barbara Wright. And in that little book, Mr. Queneau decided to take one story, a very short story, and write it in 99 styles. And that's what he did. What I'm going to do now is quote to you from this book. I'm going to read that story in three styles. Don't worry, the story is very short. It'll take only a few minutes for me to read each of these versions. But I hope it'll give you an idea that indeed one singular author can write in vastly different styles depending on the context and the audience to whom he or she wishes to talk to. So here we go. Here's the first version of that story in a style called Notation. In the S-bus, in the rush hour, a chap of about 26, felt hat with a cord instead of a ribbon, neck too long, as if someone's been having a tug-of-war with it, people getting off. The chap in question gets annoyed with one of the men standing next to him. He accuses him of jolting him every time anyone goes past. A sniveling tone which is meant to be aggressive. When he sees a vacant seat, he throws himself on it. Two hours later, I meet him in the Cour de Rome, in front of the Gare Saint-Lazare. He is with a friend who is saying, you ought to get an extra button put on your overcoat. He shows him where, at the lapels, and why. So, the whole story, as you can uh, hear, as you've heard it, is fairly innocuous about the narrator who steps into a bus called the S-Bus, at rush hour. He sees a guy, he's about 26, tall, with an elongated neck, who has a little bit of a quarrel with another passenger, and then he decides to go and sit somewhere else, 
A little later, he meets him into a plaza of Paris called Cour de Rome, and he is in front of the uh, train station, Saint, uh, uh, the St. Lazarus train station, with a friend, and the friend is telling him that he ought to get an extra button put on his overcoat, and he shows him where, the lepels, and why. And that's about the whole, this is the whole story, told in a notational form. Now, here's the same story, told using omeyotot, which is a different style, and you'll understand what that style is all about as soon as I start reading you that version of the story in this time. Here we go. On a certain date, a corporate crate on which the electorate congregate when they migrate at a great rate, late, had to accommodate an ornate tracheate celibate who started to altercate with approximate inmate and who spate. Mate, why do you lacerate, obliterate, and excoriate my plates? That is, why do you step on my toes? But to anticipate Billingsgate debate, he hastened to abdicate and sate. And await aftrate in front of the Saint Lazate gate, I notate him a gate, talkate about a batate, a batate on his overcate. As you can tell, vastly different style, different words, but nevertheless the same author. Here is the third and last version I read to you, again to illustrate this point. This is called the philosophic style, and it, in fact, it is a fairly precise story told in a philosophic manner. Great cities alone can provide phenomenological spirituality with the essentialities of temporal and improbabilistic coincidences. The philosopher who occasionally ascends into the futile and utilitarian utilitarian inexistentiality of an S-bus, sorry there, word is a mouthful, can perceive therein with the lucidity of his pineal eye the transitory and faded appearance of a profane consciousness afflicted by the long neck of vanity and the hatly plate of ignorance. This matter, void of true entelechy, occasionally plunges into the categorical imperative of its recriminatory life force against the neo-Berkelian unreality of a corporeal mechanism unburdened by conscience. This moral attitude then carries the more unconscious of the two towards a void spatiality where it disintegrates into its primary and crooked elements. Philosophical research is then pursued normally by the fortuitous but anagogic encounter of the same being accompanied by its inessential and sartorial replica which is nominally advising it to transpose on the level of the understanding the concept of overcoat button situated sociologically too low. Very different style from the two other ones, yet it is the same author. What is, that, what is the point I'm trying to make here? I'm trying to make the following point. Today, in many theological circles, this whole idea of multiple sources that were combined or synthesized by some scribe in a temple at a much later period is almost like dogma. That's how they approach scripture. My question, and it's so therefore it's fundamentally based on this notion that it's one style, one author. What I hope to illustrate here, obviously this is not a proof, but it's an illustration, that there, the, the, the idea that you can map one author to one style simply does not hold ground. You can have one style 
written by multiple authors, or multiple authors using the, the same exact style, or you can have one author using multiple styles. Therefore, um, it is imperative for us to understand that this higher critical approach has uh, significant challenges ahead of it. And this is why, and that's all I'm going to say about this, it is not the method we use in this Bible study. At the end of the day, we're not trying to become theologians. We're trying to deepen our faith. And therefore, the approach here will be based on the following premises. The Pentateuch is largely the um, um, product or comes to us from Moses with some uh, minor redaction done afterwards, obviously. But it is a singular work that is that has an internal coherence which reflects a vision that Moses received by God that tries to say something very important to us. And I think this is what the critical higher critical method tend to lose when they take that op- approach because they kind of slice the books into different sections and lose, therefore, this internal unity of the work. Now let's look at it from a very different point of view, not a point of view of style, but rather the point of view of the content, starting from Genesis and moving forward. As you know, in Genesis, and here at Corbono.com, we have an extensive study done on the book of Genesis, and I encourage you to uh, listen to it if you haven't done so. But in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve had sinned, and when the Lord had told them, had, had decided that they were to leave, He did one thing for them. He prepared animal skins to cover them. They didn't need those before, because before the fall, nature was not rebellious. Therefore, they did not feel cold. They did not feel warm. They were not hurt by the rays of the sun. They were not hurt by the natural elements. And nature was there to feed them. But after the fall, there was a fundamental disruption and nature became hostile. At which point, God made those animal skins to protect them before sending them out to the garden. Where did these animal skins come from? I mean... Obviously, God did not make him sprout out of the ground. They must have come from animals. Therefore, animals had to be killed in order for these skins to be made available for Adam and Eve. All right, keep keep that thought in mind for a little while as we move forward. After the uh, expulsion from the garden we move immediately into the scene where we see Cain and Abel offering sacrifices. And as we know, the sacrifice of Abel was accepted, that of Cain was not, and he was filled with envy and ended up murdering his brother. And as we proceed through uh, the initial account of Genesis, we see the Cainite civilization rise and fall with the flood and Noah with his family survive and when the flood waters recede and he is on solid ground 
what does Noah do? He offers a sacrifice. Offers a sacrifice. Hang that idea next to the first one, that in order for God to provide animal skins for Adam and Eve, animals were sacrificed. Moving forward, we meet Abraham. And as we all know, there is a famous account of Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice because God commanded him to do so. Now, when Abraham brought his hand down to kill his son, an angel stopped him. The fact that he brought his hand down demonstrated to Abraham and Isaac and the angel, presumably, his faith. He had faith. Mostly he had faith that somehow God will bring Isaac back from the dead because God made the promise to Abraham that through his descendant, through his descendant, all nations shall be blessed. Well, therefore, he had only one descendant, and that's, that was Abraham. That was Isaac, I'm sorry. And if he were to sacrifice that descendant, God would have to bring him back in order for all nations to be blessed. That was the faith of Abraham. But the angel stopped him. His faith was demonstrated at this point. So now think about that for a second. Why did God... Why did God ask Abraham to sacrifice the ram? If the whole intent was to demonstrate Isaac's, uh, Abraham's faith, why was the sacrifice of the ram, the ram instead of Isaac, necessary? So now hang that idea next to the first two. And let's move forward into Exodus. In Exodus, as you all know, when Moses is sent to speak to Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardens his hearts and the ten plagues are ordained against Egypt. The last plague, in the last plague, what did God command? He, God said, Whosoever, Israelite or Egyptian for that matter, whosoever were to take a lamb, sacrifice the lamb, put the blood on the sides of the house, on the sides of the door, when someone, when a family does that, then their firstborn would be spared. The firstborn would be spared. And if they don't do that, the firstborn would die. Therefore, the lamb stood instead of the firstborn. Now, using Exodus as our light and looking back at the sacrifice of Abraham, of Isaac, and the sacrifice of Noah, and the sheepskin in Genesis, for Adam and Eve, we then notice a constant theme. In all those cases, an animal was sacrificed to spare the firstborn. Isaac was spared because the ram was sacrificed. Noah, presumably, when he made this whole burnt offering to, uh, to God, 
spared his firstborn, Shem. And when Adam and Eve received these sheeps, these skins, the animal skins, these animals were sacrificed on their behalf. God did tell them, if you were to eat from this the tree of uh, good and evil, you shall surely die. And even though there was a spiritual death, their physical death was prevented precisely by those animals that were killed. So, in a fundamental sense, you can see that sacrifice, animal sacrifice, has been a constant theme across the entire Pentateuch, linking all these books together. And we might also say that the Pentateuch show, show us, shows us the uh, preve- um, prevenient love of God. For the Lord always has the solution to our problems in place before the problem shows up. We sometimes think that unless we pray, God will not answer our prayers. Well, in one sense, that is correct. That is, we have to pray. It is our duty to pray. It is our duty to praise God, but it is our duty to ask for what we need. He reminds us of this in Psalm 50, as we shall see uh, later when we go over that psalm. But what is somewhat mistaken is the notion that God would do nothing until we pray. As if the entire action of God is predicated only in our prayers, but that is not the case, because fundamentally our prayer is imperfect. And how many of us can really claim to say, one Our Father perfectly? Perfectly. Or one Hail Mary perfectly? God wants us to pray so that we learn to love Him. God is not waiting for our prayers to do what is necessary for us. Life is a gift. It's a freely given gift. After all, this is what grace is. Grace is... The supernatural life extended to us freely. It's a gift. And the gift is not necessarily waiting for someone to ask for it. It's a given. It's given out of God's love. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because when God created the animals, He already had in mind the necessity of the animal sacrifice because of what man was going to do. Likewise, When Moses went up the mountain in Exodus to receive the Ten Commandments, God instructed him on the building of the tabernacle and the institution of the priesthood, Levitical priesthood, even though at that moment every firstborn, every man in his family could actually go out and offer sacrifice to, to the Lord anywhere they wanted. That's what Abraham did. That's what Jacob did. That's what Isaac did. This is what... Joseph um, could, could, could have done. Any, any man in his family could go out and offer sacrifice to the Lord. He was a priest. 
but God already knew that there was going to be the golden calf, and as a result of the golden calf, that privilege would be lost and would be only given to the priesthood. So God was already instructing Moses in the solution to the problem that was going to happen later. And so, likewise, in our own lives, God, in many, many, in, in almost every instance of our life, has already laid out the solution to the problem we're going to create or we're creating. So, it would be indeed fair to say that our entire life is a constant conversation with God. That man at work that is irritating you, it's a, he's, a, he's part of that conversation with God. God is talking to you through this man. If you're put in a situation where you uh, have to witness to a um, immoral behavior. Maybe your colleagues are congratulating a friend of uh, uh, another colleague because she and her boyfriend moved together. Maybe you hear someone talking about uh, his desire to divorce, even though you know this person is Catholic. Maybe you're hearing about contraception being used or or or. Uh, Abortion. In all these situations, we would do well to remember that we are in a conversation with God. And that God is putting all these situations before us or putting us in those situations as part of this conversation. And His expectation, His very first expectation, isn't necessarily for us to speak and to say something to the person we're facing. His expectation is for us to raise our hands to Him and say, here I am, Lord, I've come to do your will. And then, what is your will? In some cases, in some instances, his will is for us to speak, to speak the truth, and to be bold about it. And in those cases, we should do just that. But in other cases, maybe that it is not the right time for us to speak, but it is the right time for us only to pray. And also, we would do well to remember, in all cases, if we notice a friend, a colleague, a family member, doing something against the law of God, charity commands that we speak to that person in private, gently, the right tone, and respectfully, in order to attract their attention to what they were doing, but not necessarily in order to embarrass them or disrespect them or causing them any harm. We should be very careful in the way we approach others. That does not mean that we should be timid or we should not speak the truth boldly. But the ways to speak the truth boldly, which respect the dignity of the human person. And those are the best ways for us to use or um, adopt whenever possible. We are always in a conversation with God. You're in the car, you're driving, you hear on the radio that somebody died. Turn off your radio, say a decade of rosary for the repose of the soul of this person. Because God is willed for you to hear that that news, he wants you to pray for that person. Remember, not all prayers are acceptable before the Lord. We read that in the book of Job. At the end of the book of Job, the friends of Job, God tells the, friend, the so-called friends of Job to bring animal sacrifices to Job and for Job to offer the sacrifice on their behalf because the Lord says, the prayer of Job is acceptable to me, but not your prayer. He will not accept their prayer, but... Job interceding on their behalf is acceptable to him. 
So, those are important elements that brings us back to the book of Leviticus. What is the book of Leviticus all about? As I said earlier in the introduction, it's about liturgy, the liturgy of sacrifices, and about morality. In the book of Exodus, as you all know, we spent, I mean, God essentially spent a long time, a number, about a third of the book, is spent on describing and building the tabernacle. And at the end of that book, the glory, the Shekinah, the, the Holy Spirit, comes down on the tabernacle and fills it. And the glory of the Lord is so intense that even Moses could not stay there. He had to walk out. And the book of Leviticus starts right after the end of the book of Exodus, when the glory cloud of the Lord is covering the tabernacle and calls to Moses and begins to explain how sacrifices must be offered, what the liturgy how the liturgy would function around the tabernacle. And therefore, if you now combine the Deuteronomy, that portion of the Deuteronomy dealing with the description of the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle, and the portion of Leviticus dealing with how the tabernacle must be put to use, how do people approach it, what kind of sacrifices are allowed, how the priesthood will operate, you can see that this bulk, this, this very uh, large number of chapters, about 50 total, if you consider the entire uh, Pentateuch dealing with the tabernacle, is a critical element. It's a critical core piece of the entire book of the Pentateuch. Why is that? Because God in Exodus gave Israel the Ten Commandments, the law. And then he told them the means by which they should try and live the law. And the means by which they should try and live the law is the liturgy. They need to ask for it. And then morality. They need to put it into practice. That's what the book of Leviticus is all about. This is why it is such an important book. Another important element I want to point out to you as far as Leviticus is concerned is that it is really truly a Catholic book. Because as we proceed, I hope to show you that the different sacrifices and the different ways in which the priest is uh, offering those animals on the altar really foreshadow the Mass. And hopefully we'll see that in a couple of next uh, um, Bible studies where we start delving into those sacrifices. Now, let us um, consider what Alfred Edersheim in his book, The Temple, Its Ministry and Services, said. He said, Moses must not be read independently of the Psalms, nor yet the Psalms independently of the prophets. There's are not so many unconnected writings of different authorship and age, only held together by the boards of one volume. They form integral, integral parts of one whole, 
the object of which is to point to the goal of all revelation in the appearing of the Christ. Accordingly, we recognize in the prophetic word not a change nor difference, but three well-marked progressive stages leading up to the sufferings and the glory of the Messiah. In the Proto-Evangelium, as Genesis 3.15 has been called, and in what follows it, we have as yet only the grand general outlines of the figure, that is the figure of Jesus. Thus we see a person in the seed of the woman, suffering in the prediction that his heel would be bruised, and victory in that he, he would bruise the serpent's head. These merely general outlines are wonderfully filled up in the book of the Psalms. Of Psalms, The person is now the son of David, while, like, the sufferings and the victory are sketched in vivid details in such Psalms as 22, 35, 49, and 102, or else in Psalms 2, 72, 89, 110, and 118, to speak of other almost innumerable illusions. What Alfred Edersheim is doing here is, is taking what I just said earlier and putting it into its broadest context, namely that truly Leviticus and the Pentateuch must be understood in, their, in the entire context of the Bible. We can't separate them say, from the prophet Isaiah. We can't separate him from the Psalms. We can't separate him from the, from the writings of the, of the prophet uh, Baruch, who is essentially confirming the uh, blessings and the curses as they've happened historically when uh, the Israelites were living in exile in Babylon. We cannot separate them from the New Testament, from the writings of St. Paul. What he's also saying is that there is a form of recapitulation from Genesis to Exodus. Genesis begins with creation. It depicts the rise of God's people. Exodus begins in bondage. It tells of the redemption from Egypt. And Leviticus begins in sacrifice. It sets forth the ritual of worship. So these structures are all talking about Christ. They are reminding us that God has progressively revealed himself to his people. And that is very important to keep in mind because this is how, in most cases, he reveals himself to us as well. Progressively. As we walk with his friendship, as we persevere in prayer, God progressively reveals himself to us. Okay. There's another important aspect of Leviticus that we have also to keep in mind when we look at the life of Moses. Indeed, if you think about all the, th all the activities that Moses conducted while they were in the wilderness, you can almost think of Moses as a man with uh, you know, four Twitter accounts and a bunch of Facebook pages and a bunch of uh, uh, secretaries walking with him. Moses oversaw the building of the tabernacle. 
he organized the worship around the tabernacle, as we saw in Leviticus, was going to see in Leviticus. He organized the priesthood that would perform the worship. He organized the jurisprudence system, that is, the entire legal system. He organized the government in exile. He organized the army. Fundamentally, from disorganized slaves in Egypt, Moses turned Israelites into an organized nation. And before Moses, the worship of the nation was presumably pagan because they were very much inspired by the Egyptian worship, as we saw in the Golden Calf. In Exodus 20, we find the Ten Commandments. In 21, 22 and 23, in 24, the civil legislation is given. From 25 to 31, instructions for building the tabernacle, offerings in the ark, the table, the lampstand, etc., etc. And then, the book of Exodus is structured this way. The Lord said, make, make this, do that. And then we see the second part being, they made this, did that. Whatever the, the, the Lord said, they did. So, make the tabernacle, build it, they build it. Make the lampstand, make the, uh, um, the altar of incense, make the altar of sacrifice, they did all that. With one exception. In Exodus 29, we find a description given by the Lord about the priest consecration. That is, consecrating Aaron as a high priest. This consecration does not take place in Exodus. It takes place in Leviticus 8. So that tells us right away that this continuum of the Pentateuch is an integral part to Leviticus. So, in all of this, in all this um, description of Leviticus as a book of liturgy, and a book of morality, a book that essentially gives Israel its constitution and describes how they are to properly worship, and when to worship, and what to do in a worship, and then how to live, what is, what is not acceptable. We have left so far one critical element out that we haven't really talked about. And that element is the location of the tabernacle. In Exodus... If you recall, when God came and settled on the mountain in, in thunder and lightning and uh, earthquakes, there was an invitation to all of Israel to come and meet him. The Israelites stood at the base of the mountain. The elders went up to the midpoint of the mountain and there were served a meal. And Moses alone went up to the top of the mountain where he received the law and the instruction on building the tabernacle. And that three-partite structure, the way the mountain was divided, so to speak, between the bottom, the midpoint, and the top, is exactly how the tabernacle is structured. We'll, we'll, we'll see that in more detail when we start looking at the sacrifices. The point I'm trying to make here is that the tabernacle is a portable mountain. The tabernacle is Zion. It is the mountain of the Lord. Why? Because God's intent is for Him to live in the midst of His people. This is what He's trying to recreate. In the beginning, Adam and Eve were in the garden 
and they were walking with the Lord. God was in their midst. God was with them. Emmanuel, God is with us. Then after the fall, there's this distancing that happens on the part of men, not on the part of God. And as we see the evolution from Noah to Moses and the emergence of the state or the nation of Israel, we see this desire on God's part to dwell once more in the midst of His people. So therefore, in the wilderness, God dwelling in the midst of His people is Eden again. It is a return to Eden. And, by the way, this is how God wants our homes to be. The Garden of Eden. Or, alternatively, the House of Nazareth with Mary and Joseph. He wants to dwell in the midst of His people. And that's what He does with the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle is located in the center of the camp. And all the tribes sit around it. By the way, if you read the description in Exodus... In the Numbers and in Leviticus, there seems to be a discrepancy. Because in Exodus and Numbers, it sounds like the tabernacle was mostly, uh, mostly in Exodus, the tabernacle was the place where Moses met with God and spoke to him, but it wasn't a place for offering sacrifices. It was mostly a place where Moses would go and speak to God and receive an oracle from him, but it wasn't a place to offer sacrifices. And some Theologians would then point out that these two tents were presumably different. Again, the notion there were two different authorships, one speaking one tent this way, another one speaking one tent that way, and somebody synthesizing them. Well, that's one way of looking at it. But a presumably more coherent way of thinking about it is that in Exodus, the priesthood has not yet been established, number one. And number two... More importantly, they were still crossing the wilderness to walk into the promised land in a very short amount of time, maybe, maybe measured in months. God has not yet condemned the first generation to die in the wilderness. But when this happens, then the tabernacle is moved in the center of the camp because for 40 years these people are going to live in the desert and God wanted to live in their midst. Now, God wanting to live in the midst of, that, of the people, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And this might strike you as a uh, peculiar question. On the one hand, obviously, it's a very good thing because you're living in the presence of the Lord. On the other hand, God is holy. God is holy. And God does not admit what is not holy. Alright? And what is not holy? Sin. Okay. Now let's go back to this idea that I had mentioned earlier uh, about sacrifices. Adam and Eve, the death of the animals. In the case of Noah, a sacrifice. In the case of Abraham, another sacrifice of animals substituting for his son. In the case of then the um, Moses and the entire Exodus sacrifices being mandated by the Lord. Why? Because fundamentally, fundamentally, humanity is sinful. Humanity is sinful. This explains why the fathers have always thought that God would be just if He were to condemn all of humanity to hell. 
that would not be unjust on his part because all that we deserve is indeed the fire of hell. All that we deserve. Now, we have an issue with that because when we look ourselves in the mirror, we seldom say, yeah, you deserve hell. That's not the, the thinking process we have, but that comes from an overinflated ego and an overinflated idea of ourselves and also from pride. Most of the time when something that we perceive as bad happens to us, we say, why me? Instead of saying, why not me? Indeed, the Lord himself in the Gospels reminded his contemporaries and us that if, and he said, if you who are evil, when your son asks you for a loaf of bread, you don't give him a stone, how much more your Father in Heaven will give you what you need. If you who are evil, we have to keep that in mind. Because of original sin, because of concupiscence, because of our fallen human nature, we tend to sin. Only grace restores us to the friendship of the Lord, and only grace gives us the strength to be able to live according to His will. And even then, the book of wisdom, uh, the book of Proverbs also reminds us that a, um, a just man falls seven times. Here is God present in the midst of his people. He is all holy. How could they who are sinful approach him? That is the conundrum. That's what the book of Leviticus is going to address. Now, for us, for us who are Catholic, when we go to the church, we walk into the church, and here is the tabernacle. Here is the tabernacle. Here is God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the Lord Jesus Christ is present, it means that His Father is present, the Holy Spirit is present, Our Lady and the Saints. The vision that St. John had in the book of Apocalypse, in the, in the, when he goes up and he, he, he beholds the, the throne and the one that is sitting on it, and the one who approaches the throne, that is what is present in our churches. How are we approaching the Lord when we walk into the church? How are we expressing our true adoration to Him if we sit, for instance, and we cross our legs? It might seem like a, a strange thing for me to say, but if you really think about it, when you sit and you cross your legs, you're expressing a sense of complete comfort, at ease, and mostly you're, you're in the presence of a peer, someone who is your equal. If you're in the military and you are a soldier and a, and a superior comes by, you stand to attention. You show by your bodily behavior that you respect your superior. Well... <coughs> We might do well to reflect on how are we expressing our adoration to God when we walk into the church, if we're chatting with somebody about something that is non, not religious, in the, in the sacred precinct of the church where God is present. Remove your sandals, for the ground you're on is holy. God, the Lord, the Lord told Moses, how much holier is the ground of a Catholic church? Are we working on increasing our awareness of God's presence? Are we working on increasing our devotion and 
Are we really working on showing our love to Him by our behavior, by our attitude, by our clothes, by the way we dress, by the way we conduct ourselves? If the Lord Jesus Christ were to suddenly appear from heaven and standing there, would our attitude change in any way? If our attitude will change, if we would straighten our position, if we would, if would kneel, if we would do something else, why are we doing it now? Because He is just as present in our tabernacles as He would be if He were to appear to us in, and, um, and we could see it with our naked eyes. Something to think about. And something that the book of Leviticus is going to truly help us with because in the book, God is telling us what is really important to Him when it comes to worship, what is really important to Him when it's come to um, morality. Obviously, there are certain things in the worship in Leviticus and the morality which are peculiar to the Israelites living in the wilderness. But behind the peculiarities, there are truths which are still standing today. And as we look at this book in the light of the, uh, the, the entire, the, the whole of Scripture, and in the light of the Catholic Church and the fathers of the Church, hopefully we're going to be able to see that these truths inform our worship today and will help us to truly understand what God intends from us when we go to Mass. Mass is a sacrifice. Granted, we understand that to a certain degree. It is a sacrifice. Sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's His part. What is our part in it? Is there something we must sacrifice? And if so, what is that? How do we present the sacrifice? What must we do? Hopefully, as we move forward in the study of the book, we're going to be able to better understand this and better understand how important these things are for the Lord Himself. So, as I told you earlier, beyond the liturgy itself, there are aspects of morality, which are called the Code of Holiness. And in chapters 18 through 25, we'll see that this co covers sexual conduct and mar marital obligation. Uh, there are imperative commands that are given in, the, in, in these laws. And uh, also, there are conducts beyond the, the, the marital realm, which we're going to be looking at. And finally, there's this outcome of the behavior, blessings or curses given in 26. And fundamentally, I see it as a covenantal formulation. That is, God reminding His people, just as did in, in, in uh, um, Genesis with Adam and Eve, that here is the law by which you're going to live. In the case of Adam and Eve, He told them, here are the trees by which you're going to live. And in the case of Leviticus, God is saying, here are the things you will do and the things you will not do which is what he told also Adam and Eve. And just as he told Adam and Eve, if you follow this, you will live by all these trees and by nature, and if you don't, you shall surely die. Likewise, in Leviticus, we see the same structure applying. He, blesses the, he lists the blessings that they will receive if they were to live by the commandments that he gives, and then he lists the curses that will befall them if they don't. 
How is God talking to us today? Is he saying something different? I think we're going to spend a little bit of time when we hit this chapter considering our own times and seeing in the light of these blessings and curses that he listed, he lists in chapter 26. So outline of the study, we'll finish with that. We're going to look at the sacrificial system, its purpose and meaning first, and then the consecration of the priests, and the laws of cleanliness. These three form the liturgical side of the study. Then we'll look at the Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur, very important. It's a central feast in uh, Judaism. We'll look at it in the light of Christ, obviously. And then we'll move into the Code of Holiness and the laws concerning vows to the Temple, and then finally talk about blessing and curses. So therefore, the, the Code of Holiness and the laws concerning vows of, of, to the Temple are really the moral aspect of the book. And the blessings and curses, a reminder of the Lord that He is the one in charge. He's the one who rules he is the Almighty, and He's the King, and He's the one who sets the blessings and the curses. And throughout this book, we will constantly highlight the Catholic aspects, how Mass is really tied back to the worship that we see here, how these laws of holiness apply in a more uh, purified fa- uh, form um, to us today, and we'll look at the efficacy of the Mass, what it does, and how grace truly helps us to grow in holiness. This is the program for the book of Leviticus, and I hope you'll be with us for the 15 lectures or so that we are going to um, spend covering this wonderful book, and God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.